George the Giant Slayer. How are you, sir? Doing well. How are you doing? Thank you for having me on. Good. Thanks for asking. It's our pleasure. Uh, Maybe you can just start by letting people know what you do. Well, I have a YouTube channel called George the Giant Slayer. I started it about uh, almost two years ago because I was a kidnap survivor and I wanted to be able to bring content that focuses on culture, news, also what's going on in Hollywood, because as we know today that culture sets the trend for what goes on in politics. Politics is downstream of culture. And I wanted to be able to frame it by going after those who would place themselves as giants over the world and trying to rule our lives. There's a lot going on there, George, and I'm, I'm glad glad you're so open about it. So, I mean, you, you've tapped into a, a, an interest of, of mine there. I'm a massive movie buff. I'm very interested in pop culture. I'm very concerned about the wokeification of our favorite franchises and, and outlets. Probably not as into it as you. I don't have an impressive Christian Bale, Dark Knight era <laughs> statue behind me or, or swords on the wall, uh, but I am jealous of those things. So yeah. uh, maybe you can tell me how... I mean, the fact that you you started with saying that you was the victim of a, a kidnapping. Uh, is yes. that something when I was yeah, when I was seven years old, I wrote a couple of books about it a long time ago. It was from my father. It was after my parents had divorced, and he was angry at her and thought that taking a seven year old up high into the mountains of Greece would draw her to come. And because I um, because I would refuse to bend to his will, he wanted me to say that uh, that I hated my mother and. Um, when I refused to do that, he would start, he was abusive. So it was a bit lasted for about a year. And then uh, my mother's family, my grandparents uh, rescued me. Well, I'm, I'm very glad to hear that you came through that, oh, yeah. you know, relatively unscathed at, at least. But I mean, that must have been, I mean, do, do you have a, do you have a kind of vivid memories of, of that time as a seven-year-old? Absolutely. That's why I wrote a whole book about it. No, I I do. It was day in and day out. It was about the things that kept me alive. A lot of people ask, like, what does a grown man have doing with different statues, even though I focus on pop culture. But one of the things that kept me going were the memories that I could hold on to of America. Saturday morning cartoons, uh, the heroes, how they would act and they would behave. And that kind of kept my mind focused. As a seven-year-old, this is me now reflecting back. It's like I w- wouldn't be th- sitting here thinking, like, what would Superman do? But I would think about him or Batman or Captain America. I'm like, I want to be like that. And that kept me uh, kept me going from day to day and uh, refusing to break. Well, I suppose I'll ask the hard-hitting question straight mm-hmm. off the bat, and it's a very important question, and that's what did you think of Matt Reeves's The Batman? i enjoyed the first hour and 35 minutes and i think that's where it should have ended i'm so glad you said that because i I thought we were ready to start picking a fight here i'm a huge huge fan of the bat i'm kind of like a you know a a miller dark knight returns oh i'm saying that's that's my jam when it comes to batman uh but I, i was quite quite bored and not particularly thrilled with the characterization of uh, our Lord and Savior Bruce Wayne. Um, okay, so just kind of pivoting a little bit to pop mm-hmm. culture and, and where we are now in terms of how studios kind of feel they can't just give us entertainment and well-written characters, you know, diverse characters in, in a way that we understand it from the films in the eighties. Uh, they feel like they have to kind of push a message, mm-hmm. and I think I'm just wondering what's changed to make studios think that's a good business strategy. 
Well, I don't think they believe it's a good business strategy. As a matter of fact, you'd have Bob Iger, who recently, I mean, I'm sure you, you saw that, what Elon Musk said after Disney was boycotting them, doing an advertising boycott. He gave his great answer. Bob Iger was at that same uh, platform. And in that platform, he stated, okay, I'm paraphrasing. We've gotten the message. We're no longer going to focus on the message, the social message. We're going to get back to entertainment. Except seven days prior to that, they put out the uh, Disney put out their Securities and Exchange Commission 10K filing report. In it, it gives all the warnings, all the risk factors of buying their stock for current or future shareholders. And it states specifically in legalese that we will continue to push a social justice and environmental message, and that may risk our profits, but we're not stopping. So they believe that their duty to their crusade, the woke crusade, is more important than profits. At the same time, they believe that they're not coming after you and I. They're looking at the kids. They hope that they can have the money to last long enough to win that race before they go bankrupt. Because remember, Disney is a massive corporation. People forget that Disney Studios is probably the tiniest tiniest aspect of their whole empire, except for the fact that it's the mouth. It's the brand recognition. People don't go, okay, I think of Disneyland or ESPN or ABC and go, that's Disney. No, you think of the movies. You think of Mickey Mouse. You think of Captain America. And when that pollutes everything else with its message, it destroys the company. Yeah, I mean, do you feel there's a kind of revisionist aspect to a lot of this? Because there's a lot of people talking about strong female characters or, you know, black leads in films as if the, like, the kind of 80s and 90s never <laughs> happened. I mean, I, 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 Aliens is one of my favourite movies of all time. Yeah, I, never really, I never really considered it as a strong female lead. It was just a, an amazing character, a completely, you know, wonderfully made film. I, I rewatched Beverly Hills Cop the other day, the first one. I've not seen that since a teenager. I, I, used, to, I used to want to be Eddie Murphy watching oh, it. Oh, yeah. And it just occurred to me re-watching it, in fact, actually, that the entire movie is built around him, his performance. Mm -hmm. The story's not particularly great, but it's all about his charisma. The entire movie is on the shoulders of a black man. And if he fails or people don't like him, that movie fails. But it was a roaring success. success. Everybody loves it. There's a fourth one coming out next year. So where's this mentality come from that, that, you know, now in 2020, now we're suddenly discovering that, female characters are important or, you know, diverse casts. I'll I'll give you an example. I I think it comes from a place of of someone's own personal guilt. They created, uh, maybe it's out of a sense of privilege that they feel that they weren't doing enough in Hollywood. But I just saw Godzilla minus one, and I've been working on a video for it. And I, and one of the, something that I was thinking about is that everything Hollywood creates today divides people. In that theater in Godzilla minus one, everyone was united. It's a genuinely brilliant film. I would say it's a masterpiece for 2023. It's not a monster movie. It's a human movie that happens to have a monster in it. And uh, it, and it's going back now to your question. Alien's one of my favorites. Uh, Colombiana, another one of my favorites. Long Kiss Goodnight with Gina Davis. We didn't look before and go, who is the lead? Is that a woman? Is that a black woman? Is that a black man? It's just, is that a great character? But see, once a company becomes radicalized and they go woke, it slowly infects the whole organism like a cancer. 
So what you have is the same people who were reviewing scripts before to push up to the boss are now interns from Ivy League schools who are leftist radicals. So they're not pushing good scripts to go, okay, I got 100 scripts in this week. Which one's going to go up to the producer? No, not these. The one about the flower child who's like diverse, LGBTQ. So it's throughout the system. Everyone they hire from in front and behind the camera push a message. And when they do that, and you don't put storytelling first, you don't have anything to sell. George Lucas stated it. What are movies? You're selling creativity. Corporations don't know anything about that. Yeah, I think I think audiences are a lot smarter than studios imagine. Yep. And I don't necessarily think we mind political subtext or subtext about racism mm -hmm. or apartheid or anything like that. I mean, we films that have a, a, a strong message in that sense. Uh, uh, you know, are well established and have been successful. I think, I think we tend to dislike having the finger wagged at us and being told we're terrible. And, and here's the the correct opinions, don't we? The lecture. Well, yes. you're not. You don't want to go do homework at a movie theater and be lectured. You're paying <laughs> money to be entertained. But it's the same way that uh, when you were asking me earlier what I do on the channel, I also cover uh, the Megans because of their impact on culture and what they represent. And it's the same, the you know, Mayor and Megan, Harry and Megan, the oh, same okay. way, yeah, the same way that they impact culture. But it's more of what they represent because they have very little impact on the culture. But the well, so, yeah, I'd love to love to get into Harry and, and Megan. Just one last question on this this woke movie thing, and I don't yeah, know if yeah. you noticed that you know Top Gun Maverick was a roaring success, very entertaining. Yeah. I loved it. I'm not sure, I'm not sure what you made of it, oh, but absolutely he, because that film to me and Tom Cruise films seem to do this, they don't seem to engage in any culture war nonsense at all. And it's not anti-culture war or anti-woke, it's just mm -hmm. completely apolitical. And it's, Film. It's, it's a movie, exactly. But I don't know if you noticed, people were starting to describe Top Gun as anti-woke yeah. simply on by the fact that it didn't engage at all. So even, even remaining neutral now seems like a transgression to a lot of these people. It is because... Remember, there is a side that says, if you're not with us, you're against us. That's the way they view the world through a binary lens. You can't make a good story if it doesn't involve something that they believe in or it's not a soapbox that's pushing a message or an agenda, then they view that as an enemy. And they look at Tom Cruise and films like that, whether it's Oppenheimer, which obviously did have a message, but it's a message. It's a historical one. It wasn't. Let me beat you over the head with it. Uh, top people, people still complain that they didn't deal with the uh, the Japanese, you know, the Hiroshima bomb, and they didn't focus solely on that in right. a film called Oppenheimer, which is you, it just goes to show you can't really win. No, I think you just have to be true to yourself, like everything else. I think top, I think Tom Cruise is true to himself. He loves making great, entertaining films. Christopher Nolan, the same way. It's about story. He doesn't care about agenda. Do Do you think then? I mean, obviously you saying it's not really about money with with studios or that's not their motivation necessarily uh, eventually someone's going to have to look at the bottom line and see how deeply unpopular these films are will that will there would be a, a redress of this at some point will they go back to just classic hollywood movies you know before a week ago i said yes i thought it would happen in two and a half to three years because you know it usually takes about anywhere from two to three years from something being greenlit in hollywood till we actually see it in the theater you know, mm -hmm. going through the production pipeline. And I'm like, okay, they've really gotten the message. 
It's been beaten over the head. They're losing billions of dollars. So they're going to flush everything that's woke out of their pipeline, and then they're going to start producing great movies again, good stories. But after seven days ago, when Disney put out, basically, we're going to keep losing money because we're going to push this message. They don't care. They And it's hard. I, I, I was had a hard time grappling with it. It's like a company has to have money to turn the lights on. But when you look who's behind them, the different investment firms, their message is we don't care how much we lose. We have a crusade. So I think what's going to happen is you're going to have independent films. You're going to have smaller studios. Uh, content creators are starting to fill the void the same way that in the comic industry you have Eric July has now one of the number one comics and he's an independent comics creator who's outselling Marvel and DC because he's giving the customers what they want. So you're going to have filmmakers doing the same thing. They're going to go, we're just going to focus on the story. And with all the tools that are coming out, you can do the same thing that a studio does. That's interesting. I mean, right. I mean, this term superhero fatigue has been thrown around for 20 years and it never really came. And, you know, Marvel were laughing all the way to the bank, mm -hmm. essentially. And I'm just wondering, obviously, that seems to be on a downturn now. And I'm just to get your opinion on it. Is this is this due to a reduction in the quality of Marvel movies or are people are people just kind of, OK, yeah, we get it. It's, it's an action comedy with a big third act CGI fight. We've seen this already. We're ready for something fresh. I just think it's quality. I don't think there's superhero fatigue. I think there's fatigue of bad material. I think it's just bad movies. It's just bad. And it's not entertaining. I mean, the last film that Marvel did that actually did well was Guardians of the Galaxy 3. And that was, uh, that I didn't have the best box office. But look at the Marvels. It flopped completely. So much so that 24 hours ago, Disney stated that they will no longer be reporting the box office numbers from week to week. That's how bad it did, because it lost over $300 million in its first three weeks, because it didn't uh, have a good script. Yeah. And I, I suppose, I mean, you think they perhaps they would have learned uh, from Todd Phillips, the Joker movie. I think oh, yeah. that was an incredibly low budget film i made over a billion at the dock nope. box office if, if i'm not mistaken nope. but it, i mean just listening to todd phillips talk about that it seems there was a lot of studio pressure mm -hmm. in the early stages executives at warner brothers who were looking to try and get this closed down didn't quite understand it didn't see where it it fit into the, the sort of the cinematic universe and it, that film could have quite easily not have been made had some executives got their way and I, i'm just wondering it it is, would it be great? I mean, should we look forward to perhaps more low-budget takes yes. on a lot of these big IPs? Absolutely. Like I mentioned earlier, Godzilla Minus One, a budget of $15 million. And 15? Looked, $15 million, And it looks like a blockbuster. It already made its money back in a week. $15 million. Hollywood, a lot of people joke, like, are they laundering money? What are they doing? You don't, how do you get a two to $300 million? Marbles cost $300 million, and the UK gave them a $50 million uh, tax rebate. Uh, so how do you have a film like that when you have Godzilla minus one, $15 million, and it's already profitable? Because you don't, you don't need all of that. You don't need all of that money. But let's say, for example, have you heard of Amazon's Rings of Power series? Yes, that was the Tolkien adaptation. Oh, which, I'm a Tolkien lover. I, you can you could tell. So um, they spent almost a billion dollars between buying the rights and the production for season one and setting up for season two. They had on the first season twenty two producers, twenty two, each one getting paid 
when you start charting the companies that were set up, it's like, okay, who, which producer has a cousin which owns a laundry service? <laughs> I mean, you can see where the money is going. It's not going on the property. Did that so, get a second season? I saw the critical response. It did. It, 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 which, which is, okay, they have a contract for five years with the Tolkien estate to do five seasons. Of course, they could buy out the contract and not do it. I, I think Bezos just pushed it forward just for ego because it was their worst rated series ever. Only 37% of the audience who watched episode one Watch the ending. Watch the finale. But yet they're coming back in 2024 with season two without an audience. Let's talk about Rachel Zegler then, because she's become the poster girl for this problem, emblematic of it. And I'm kind of, I've got a split opinion on this. So I think, first of all, I, I find her obnoxious, but only in the way I find very young, confident political people obnoxious and you know the 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 npc woke talking points that she throws out she's obviously she's beautiful she's talented she's there's a lot of privilege there money as well and and she's finger wagging finger wagging at other people Uh, i do feel however that the kind of i do still see her as a young girl and i do kind of think the pressure and the the rhetoric that's coming her way and some of the vitriol is almost a bit too much i mean are, are we blowing her comments out of proportion perhaps a little bit I thought in the beginning, yes, but when she continued the pattern, because, okay, everybody, especially when you're young, we all make mistakes. doesn't matter what your age is. She made a comment. You're like, okay, I ignored it in the beginning. It's one comment. Who hasn't said something stupid? All of us. And just to, just to set the scene, this is, this is her basically kind of, she's taken on the role of Snow White, hasn't she? Right. She kind of, in an interview, in throwaway comics, basically just, you know, shat on this story and the original film and, and said that it needed updating. And it was, it was she was basically calling it patriarchal and not suitable right. for today's audiences. Correct. And so she trashed on something. But again, again, we have to put it in context. Context is king. Snow White built Walt Disney. He put everything on it. If Snow White, the animated film in 1937, had failed, we would there would be no Disney company. He bet the bank on it, his home. And it's a story that everyone at some point has either watched or read or been read to from the Brothers Grimm's Tales. So what do you have here? When she first made her comment, people were like, oh, whatever. But then she kept repeating it. When you tie that then together with the comments that she started to make about the actor strike going on in Hollywood, which I think is supposed to be resolved today. And then she kept compounding it. Her biggest mistake was she put out a video where she tried to play the victim, saying everybody's attacking me and this is unfair. And she was trying to turn the tables. And I think that turned everyone's perspective around. Says, okay, this isn't a mistake from someone. This is someone who's full of themselves and uh, doesn't have a right to be Remember, she's done two films. Now with Hunger Games, it'll be three. And they've all flopped. Yet she has the ego of someone who's like, what do you, you think you're Beyonce or Taylor Swift or uh, Meryl Streep? It, it, it doesn't fit. She represents what I believe is a generational clash. But she's also become the face of Hollywood in the way. Uh, I, a lot of people in my comments will always say she's the Meghan Markle's like little sister. <laughs> I mean, they view her the same way. That's a great segue, actually, into Harry and Harry and Meghan. And I'm just wondering. I mean, a lot of relationships end in divorce anyway, just statistically. You know, yep. uh, certainly celebrity weddings don't fare particularly well. Mm-hmm. And I mean, just in terms of how much 
of the spotlight they have on them, the scrutiny, that must be an added level of stress, stress rather, and pressure to a marriage. But given given what they've said together and what they've done, they, they've really got to stay together forever now, haven't they, to prove a point? <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, one would think so. I just don't think you can have two... I don't think you can have two narcissists, what one I consider to be full-blown, and the other one who's just kind of, I would say, narcissist lost. Like, he wants to be something, just doesn't know what he wants to be. Uh, I don't think that can last in, uh, in in over time, even no matter how stubborn you are, because eventually one will turn on the other, and I think Megan will turn on him. I mean, we can see, what do they have? Prince Harry was born a prince. That's what he has in the royal family, was loyal to his country. Then all of a sudden, he marries this woman. What did she have? The press pushes her as if, okay, here's this self-made woman. She was something before Harry. And I'm like, okay, let's really break it down. What was she? She was a working actor. 10% of the actors in the United States are working actors. They're not famous. People don't know them. They'll do a cable show. Where are the rest of her peers? Nobody knows who the hell they are. That's what would happen to a typical actor. They might do a run. If it doesn't transition, that hit series doesn't transition into films or another show, they're gone. They disappear. If she hadn't have married Harry, who would Megan be today? No one. So when you have that type of mentality, the person that at least that we see, rep- that she represents, who looks to use people, eventually they turn and become self-destructive. And they turn on their partner. So I don't think it's going to last however long. Is it a year, five years? Eventually. And to me, it has a gloomy end. <laughs> are you, you're located on the, in the States, aren't you? Yes. I just wanted to get your opinion of kind of royalty from a, an American uh, located perspective. Because, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty insane to me, royalty mm-hmm. and monarchy, as a, as a Brit. I've always found it very... Bizarre, strange ceremonies, silly hats, cakes. It's all a bit. It's all a bit Dungeons and Dragons, and um, and I'm wondering how much kind of uh, clout that has in the states with Harry. He's walking around as an ex-royal. Does that command a level of respect, or does that command a level of cynicism from the American public? Cynicism, more likely. But I, I, I but I have to separate that. I will have to say this. I was raised. My family loves the British royal family. My grandmother worked with the British and Greek underground during World War II. So we were raised, the British royal family. I mean, we grew up watching Queen Elizabeth anytime she spoke. So I've always loved the royal family. Atypical Americans would be okay. They view them as a celebrity couple. They don't like the fact that the media will sometimes say, oh, it's the Duke or Duchess in here. They're like, cool, when you're in the UK, when you're in Europe, do that here. They get furious with that. Don't do that here, yeah. No, they don't. They don't like that at all. So to them, it's like they wore their red poppies uh, on Veterans Day. Americans don't do that. We do that on Memorial Day. Some people do it. So they took that as an insult. Like, why are you going to Harry and Meghan went to a Navy SEAL rehab facility to a ribbon cutting ceremony? They're like, what are you doing there? (laughs) You're a British royal U.S. military facility. It's like it. It, it doesn't make sense. But they also, they didn't think they showed the, the same respect. It's like, so you did that for the U.S., but what did you do for, you know, the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth? Like I said, I have a great love for my cousins across the pond. Yeah, so, I'm, um, I'm very fond of our late queen. Uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. The whole monarchy concept that loses me a little bit, I suppose. But, I mean, is, is it a case of, like, there's no real precedent for this. I mean, we've had people abdicate before. Uh, and leave and stuff but we've never had this happen 
in the era of celebrity interest, social media, paparazzi, you know, thing, things like that. I suppose Princess Diana might be a, a slight exception there. And I mean, what, what are they supposed to do? We've got an ex-actress, we've got an ex-royal. Uh, what is it, what is expected of them in terms of work now? What, what can they possibly do? Well, see, I think they should have done exactly what they said. They said they wanted to go and live their lives, but that would be normal. No one would have a problem with them. If they had gone, gone away to a little farm, gone to wherever they wanted to and just live their lives, have kids, do their thing, no one would care. But again, that is what gives them away. Every time, look, how, do you notice that everything that they do is designed either to attack the royal family and to take away press. Every time someone in the family has an event, they hold a similar event. It's like you saw her the other day. Because you have Omid Scobie's book out, all of a sudden now paparazzi are supposedly following her when she's in a parking lot going from a gym. Come on. She's not Jennifer Lopez. She's, she's not an A-list star. That doesn't happen. What does she have a bodyguard for? Okay, You only see top celebrities have that or politicians. Do you think it was a particularly poor form for them to make allegations of racism and not name the people involved? I mean, so they're publicly making accusations, but not naming the people. This this has the effect of inviting speculation and having the finger pointed at everyone and everyone. Well, I think they did exactly what they wanted to, which was they tried, they made the allegations by intimating them without saying it so everybody could draw the conclusion they wanted. So then they could then play the victim by denying it when they were attacked. See, that's the little trap that they play that people caught on to, and that's why they're angry. I think they should have never said anything. It's like if you have family members who have done something in any family, you, you don't air your dirty laundry. That's no. number one. So I think that's why they're so despised. Two, if anyone had actually said that in the royal family, I would be like, and what family doesn't say that? I mean, my God, what were you like? What color is my kid going to be? It's like, is he going to have your skin or my skin, your hair or my hair? My, I mean, everybody says that. Is he going to look more Greek like my my dad or is he going to look more like I mean, that, that's common. That, that's not racist. I'm glad you I'm glad you said that because it was going to be my next question, because I suppose in the litany of potential racist inquiries, that doesn't rank particularly highly, does it? It feels like a very modern kind of uh, perception, a very privileged perception of what counts as racism to me, which kind of fits with, I suppose, Megan's MO. I mean, you mentioned the word narcissist to describe her before. I mean, I, I, I'm not qualified to diagnose people with that kind of thing. I'm not sure if you are, but uh, I mean, what, what, what kind of things are you are you pointing at to make that kind of... Uh, the only reason I... Yeah, I'm not, a, I'm not a psychologist. I've studied it. The only reason I would point to that is as a survivor, when you're a survivor... And again, I'm not trying to hang my hat on that. In order to survive every day being kidnapped, even though I was seven, you, you get an ability to read the room every moment because your life depends on it. If you read someone wrong, they could harm you worse, kill you, do anything. So you start to learn to be able to read body language. Again, not an expert. It's just experience through life. What I call narcissism is exactly, I'll give you a point, the wedding, right? What did she tell Oprah? That they had a, ser a private ceremony a few days before the royal wedding, the public, right? That, to me, is an example of narcissism. And what by that I mean is, why would she reveal, after the former Privy Counsel Norman Baker said, that total of $60 million was spent on the royal wedding, 
coming from the British taxpayer, about four million from Charles, King Charles. Why would she tell the public, ha na na boo boo? Guess what? We had a private ceremony. What's the purpose? So why did they spend all that money then? That to me is someone who goes, I got my cake to eat it too. I wanted to have, you know, the carriage, the flowers, everything that, you know, Prince William and Princess uh, Catherine did. But I also wanted to have my private ceremony without you. That to me is the height of hubris, the height of narcissism. That is interesting. Well, George, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Um, I will definitely add that Godzilla movie to my list of course. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to point people towards before you get back to the rest of your day? Uh, no, it was great being on here. Thank you for having me. By the way, it opens in the UK on the 15th of uh, next week. And, That's great. Uh, yeah, it's great. You can find me on Twitter or on YouTube at George Molo and Georgia Giant Slayer. I hope to see you soon. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for speaking to us. Thank you. Take care. If you're looking for a gift, my new book, Sit Downs with Gangsters, is available worldwide on Amazon. We've interviewed over a thousand people now, and we selected 10 of the hardest-hitting stories to go in this book. Each chapter features the story of one of our podcast guests. Those stories are Shane Taylor, Knife Maniac's Redemption, John Elite, Mafia Hitman for the Gambino Crime Family, Joey Barnett, 35 years in UK prison, Ian Blink McDonald, £6 million bank robber, Chet Sandu, Asian smuggler in Spanish Supermax, John Lawson, the hit team commander, David Macmillan, international smuggler's tie death row prison escape, John Abbott, San Quentin prison shootout and escape, Michael Francis, Colombo crime family capo portrayed in Goodfellas. And Wildman, English enforcer in Arizona prison. Link in description box on YouTube, available worldwide on Amazon. Also, my next book, Untouchable Jimmy Savile, is getting published in December 2023. So check that out as well. It will be available worldwide on Amazon. Thank you for listening. Cheers.